This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, March 31st, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. The mindset of the regulator is one that wants to compel private sector actors to seek permission to serve their fellow man. So how should supporters of the right to earn an honest living push back? Clark Neely is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. We spoke this week. I was recently talking with uh, Peter Van Doren on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of Regulation Magazine, and uh, Regulation started about the same time a pretty massive deregulatory effort uh, was got underway during the Carter administration, trucking, oil, uh, uh, rail shipping, all sorts of things that are contributing to our economy today. And there, we've con- had continued regulating and deregulating of various industries. At where now do people face the biggest threats to uh, their economic liberty? Yeah, so it's not one particular industry or vocation. It's more from the mindset um, from from legislators, particularly state legislators, that essentially every occupation you can imagine might need to be regulated, which is to say by licensing the practitioners, uh, because essentially you, you can come up with you know, a rationalization for any occupation, you know, by definition, if it's interacting with the public, if it's interacting with the consumers, there's a possibility for consumers to get hurt or ripped off or whatever it might be. That opens the door for, for potential regulation. And somewhere in that vocation, pick any vocation you want, there is some group that would like to see more regulation for the purpose of sandbagging potential competitors. So it's a mindset among legislators that, that uh, occupational regulation is a good thing and it's growing like wildfire. As uh, I've heard people say, um, would-be regulators say, your model of self-regulation has failed. And a great example of that is how much more awesome a DC taxi is than Uber, right? Because if you have a problem in a DC taxi, I'm sure you've noticed the speed with which regulators step in to address that problem uh, and, and deal with any issues that arise. Whereas with Uber, there's just a complete indifference to customer set. Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry, I've got that backwards. I've got that exactly backwards. So, yes, it's a mantra, and it's, it's completely devoid of any factual support. Market regulation of the kind that we see with Uber through ratings and consumer feedback and, and people simply refusing to deal with a company when they have other choices, that has absolutely worked. And anybody who's had you know, contact with those industries where that, those dynamics are present knows that it has worked. What drives that mindset? There has to be some, uh, I guess, fear of inaction by lawmakers. I don't want to be the one holding the bag. I don't want to be the one who said, let's not regulate. Right. Uh, when we clearly should have. That seems to, fear seems to be driving some of it. I think so. Uh, and I think there's a couple of other dynamics. So, um, in the 1950s, only about 5% of the American workforce was subject to occupational licensing. Now the figure is about 25% and climbing. And so you think about if you are somebody who's had some role in that process or somebody who has supported occupational licensing, you have to believe essentially as an article of faith that we have gotten something for that that overlay of regu- that additional regulation. Um, you have suppressed innovation. You have destroyed competition. You have discouraged people from pursuing gainful employment. You have put hurdles and hoops in the path of people who are simply trying to put food on their family's table. You have inflicted massive, massive costs, hundreds of billions of dollars in costs to the economy. 
And you wake up in the morning and presumably you look in the mirror and, and if you're at all aware and intellectually honest, you have to ask yourself, for what? And so you, you build this entire fantasy about how efficacious it has been. Oh, we've protected consumers, we've ensured that people don't get ripped off, yada, yada, and there's no evidence to support that. So it is essentially, it's just a massive group delusion on the part of the regulators. They think they've achieved something they haven't. As a policy matter, uh, you see uh, the fights uh, and full disclosure, my wife has written a lot of these reports for the Institute for Justice on things like teeth whitening uh, services that are performed outside the uh, auspices of a dentist's office, uh, food trucks, which are uh, claimed, and we've she has found that it's not true, that they're somehow dirtier than uh, rest, brick and mortar restaurants, and they need to be regulated very uh, strictly. As a policy matter, to come up with something to combat uh, each of those seems like a, uh, a Sisyphean task in a way, because you have to do, deal with it each uh, as an individual industry, as an individual fight. Is there a substantial difference or a, a more striking of the root from fighting this in court than fighting this as a matter of policy? Yeah, it's a great point. And the answer is yes, absolutely. Um, if we had a properly engaged judiciary, um, we would be getting a much different um, look at these kinds of regulations. The other dynamic that drives so much occupational overregulation is it turns out that, sand, that, that as a legislator, helping sandbag some of your more politically influential constituents' potential competitors is a really nice thing to hand out. It's a nice little um, uh, you know, plum that you can hand out. And this has been going on for hundreds of years. The, the royal monarchs used to do it in England. This is nothing new. And so if, if you want to essentially curry favor with politically influential constituents, a great way to do that um, is to ensure that other people can't cut into their business. We see this with hair braiding, caskets, teeth whitening, everything that you know, we've talked about. So there's, um, there's a dynamic where legislators are often acting in a completely non-public spirited way. They are passing regulation not to benefit the public, but to benefit particular private interests. That's blatantly unconstitutional. Um, the way the courts turn a blind eye to that, which virtually all of them do, is that they say, well, when we're reviewing a challenge, an economic liberty challenge, instead of insisting that the government provide an honest explanation for its regulation and support any evidentiary, or I'm sorry, any empirical assertions uh, that come with it with evidence, we'll just let them get away with speculation and conjecture. So they create this completely fraudulent standard of review called the rational basis test that was really developed for the specific purpose of enabling the judiciary to, to rubber stamp whatever the legislative branch is doing, no matter how seedy and, and frankly, in some cases, nakedly corrupt. And all it would take um, to, to substantially change the dynamic is to get the courts back in the business of, of uh, their normal truth-seeking function. You know, and the, the ironic thing is they wouldn't even need to necessarily strike down all that many laws. If they simply, again, engaged in their normal truth-seeking function, they would at least highlight, okay, let's just be clear what's going on here. This is, a naked, this is just public choice theory. This is a naked um, you know, attempt to sandbag one group at the, to benefit another. And if at least if the courts are being honest, as they do in a small handful of cases they care about, like free speech cases, that would help, I think, with a national dialogue, because then we could be talking about what's really going on. And instead, the courts do the opposite thing, which is essentially provide cover um, for this constitutionally illegitimate regulatory conduct by pretending to believe that it's uh, motivated, for, from, that it comes from a public-spirited place. 
Oftentimes it doesn't. And it really matters whether you have a judiciary that is in or not in the business of, of getting to the truth. And when it comes to economic regulations in most settings, the judiciary, the judiciary has avowedly abandoned its truth-seeking role. And I lay that at the feet of the judiciary, and it's a disgrace. What are some cases where we have seen uh, courts, uh, particularly federal courts, deal with uh, economic liberty recently? Yep. Uh, and you, you thought, well, they did the job. Yep. So, a couple of categories. Every once in a while, you'll get a lower court that'll go off the reservation and actually approach a straight-up occupational licensing challenge um, in its normal, customary truth-seeking you know, mindset. Uh, example of that, we had a case, we had a, um, one of our African hair braiding cases in Utah, a woman named Justina Clayton. Um, she wanted to braid hair. State of Utah said, nope, can't do that without a cosmetology license. We showed the judge that in order to get that cosmetology license would require 1,500 hours of totally irrelevant training. Enough time, by the way, to get a law to get a law degree, to become a licensed mortgage broker, a real estate um, I'm sorry, mortgage originator, real estate broker, armed security guard, um, and EMT. And the judge looked at that and saw how ridiculous it was and said, There's nothing, there's no genuine attempt to advance the public interest here. So he struck down the law. So every once in a while it happens in that sphere, but usually not, because courts have abandoned by and large their truth seeking role when it comes to economic liberty in that context. Interestingly enough, if she had been from out of state and Utah had one set of regulations for people from out of state and another more favorable set of regulations for people who live in the state, suddenly the judiciary would engage and they would say, well, you're generally not allowed to have that kind of differential treatment unless you have a genuinely public-spirited reason that stands up to scrutiny, do you? And of course, the answer would have been, no, we do not. We're just trying to promote the narrow economic interests of our own residents, and it would have been struck down. Notice what the court would have done in order to resolve that case, though. It simply would have made an honest inquiry into what was really going on. That's all we ask the courts to do in our normal economic liberty cases, and they systematically refuse to do it, not because it's impossible, not because the Constitution requires it, but because our feckless judiciary has decided that in rational basis cases, in cases involving insignificant freedoms like your ability to earn a living, or I should say freedoms that the Supreme Court has deemed to be insignificant, um, they should abandon their truth-seeking role and simply rubber stamp what the government's doing, whether it's legitimate or illegitimate. And again, I think that's disgraceful and I think it's indefensible, but it is a, it is a very fair characterization of modern constitutional jurisprudence in this area. Defend economic liberty in a very small subset of cases, like when a state is you know, putting the boots to outsiders but sell, sell it down the river in, in most other settings, and that's not defensible. And in, in that uh, example, you're talking about people who are, uh, you're talking about the court using a different uh, set of tools in order to make a judgment right. about the importance of having this set of rules versus that set of rules. Yeah, and I would call that different set of tools an honest inquiry into what the truth of the situation is. And that's actually quite a radical thing for courts to do in the economic liberty sphere, because usually they don't make an honest inquiry. They make no effort to determine what's really going on. But it's amazing. You change one thing. So for example, instead of hair braiding, imagine that it's advertising hair braiding. Suddenly, you're going to get an engaged judge. And what's that judge going to say to the government? Hey, um, why are you not allowing this person to advertise? And, if you tell, and, and, and I need two things. I need an honest explanation. And if you're going to assert something about the world, you're going to need to prove it. 
And that's, that's just that's engaged judging. And it comes up in some constitutional cases, and it seems to work fine. So the decision to be not engaged, to abdicate, is, a, is just a matter of judicial will. It's simply they're refusing to, um, you know, to, to analyze the case they, the way they do when they care about the constitutional value at stake, which, again, is insisting on an honest explanation from the government that's supported by evidence. Um, we call that litigation. That's, that's just how we decide cases in this country. Again, unless it um, involves a right that the Supreme Court has deemed non-fundamental, which, by the way, is most of them. And then the judiciary, the judicial review is a charade as opposed to a genuinely truth-seeking process. Even if you're using a slightly better than rational basis uh, review, it seems like there are a whole lot of uh, cases that are a whole lot of regulations and laws that could get tossed just based on how lawmakers do their jobs and how regulators do their jobs. Um, there was a few years ago, um, uh, lawmakers in Virginia noticed that sangria was technically illegal. And so instead of getting rid of the law, which makes regulators' job easier, prohibiting the mixing of wine and liquor into a single beverage, because that sort of scrambles the brains of regulators when it's trying to figure out how to tax such a thing, um, they just carved out an exemption for sangria right. and said, oh, now sangria is legal, and as far as we're concerned, we've done the job. And uh, regulators, for their part, are perfectly happy to have their jobs made easier by lawmakers who just carve out exemptions so that they can appropriate or set the right taxes and set the right rates and make sure that everything is still under their control. Yeah, and that's a great point about exceptions. We, we often see one of the hallmarks of an illegitimate law of a, of, or of a law that has some other purpose than the one that the state is asserting is when you have a bunch of inexplicable exceptions. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, one of our one of our most outrageous economic liberty cases involve uh, Louisiana's requirement that, that you have a license to be a florist. So just like a doctor or a lawyer has to have a license in Louisiana, you have to have a license to be a florist. And one of the things that came up during the case was the fact that they allow floral shops to continue operating for up to 30 days without a state licensed florist, you know, if your state licensed florist quits or whatever. And I asked the head of the Louisiana Horticulture Commission, aka the Flower Police, um, do you require the store to provide notice to its customers that it's operating without a state licensed florist, that seems like that, you know, if there's anything to your case, it seems like that's information they would want. And he just looked at me blankly. He was like, I, that never occurred to me. And I said, yeah. Well, I didn't say it, but in my mind, I said, yeah, it didn't occur to you because there's nothing really going on here. There is no consumer protection issue. And we've seen this uh, over and over again. There's just all these exceptions and exemptions that, um, that'll be built into a law. So, for example, the, uh, you may recall that uh, about a year ago, I think, the New York had a law banning uh, the sale of, of large soft drinks, soft drinks in a larger than a certain size. Guess what? They exempted 7-Eleven and other convenience stores. Did they exempt it because they're not a part of the, pro the supposed problem? No, they exempted them because otherwise the political pushback would have been fatal uh, to, to the effort to pass that law. So, um, as I said, the, the existence of inexplicable exemptions and exceptions is often a warning sign or, or uh, you know, a tell that um, there's something illegitimate going on. And, and in fact, often there is something illegitimate going on. This just helps you realize it. Now, uh, years ago, I remember uh, I'm from Louisville, and um, the Jefferson County instituted a citywide smoking ban. It was a countywide smoking ban, but they exempted uh, Churchill Downs and I think maybe a couple of other places. But the, the whole argument 
was, well, we're protecting workers. Yeah. I thought, well, why not these workers? Yeah, and the answer is because the, the bill would have been killed if we included them. And this is interesting to me because, again, if you have a properly engaged judiciary, what you will you should be able to go into court and assert an equal protection claim against these kinds of laws. And this is a really, this is a deep but important point. It's not just about ensuring that everybody gets treated equally and they have a right to be treated equally, absent some compelling explanation for not doing so, but it's also to ensure political accountability. It's ensure, to ensure that our politics works properly and that, uh, and that political constituencies don't get bought off with with irrational exceptions, or I should say exceptions that have nothing other to, to do with public policy and only to try to essentially prevent them from opposing the bill. That's not how politics is supposed to work. And the government is supposed to have a public-spirited justification for treating people differently or interfering with our liberty. And as I said, the judiciary sometimes ensures that the government acts for public-spirited reasons, but usually doesn't. And that's a huge problem. What should lawmakers be thinking about when it comes to uh, entrepreneurship and treating uh, innovation seriously and wanting to, because lawmakers, uh, as brilliant and smart as many of those people are, cannot see the future laid out before them and cannot see the kinds of uh, innovation that could be allowed and, and would-be entrepreneurs who are considering putting a large stake of money on the line and striking out on their own and, and uh, starting some sort of business can easily and quietly be cowed by the regulatory regime or the legal regime that is in front of them. You bet. Uh, so the short answer is tie yourself and your colleagues to the mast, by which I mean make it so difficult to impose new occupational licensing regulations that it's virtually impossible uh, without a truly compelling justification. One way to do that, unfortunately, we haven't made a lot of progress with this. Both, both the Institute for Justice and the Goldwater Institute have, have propounded model legislation that would alter the standard of review in court so that instead of going, let's say that your ability to earn a living is being interfered with by some government regulation, instead of going into court and getting the fraud and charade of, rational base, of modern rational basis review, which is just, as I said, it's a fraud and a charade, and it's totally devoid of content, the legislature will instruct the judiciary to provide a genuine standard of review where, where the, the, the government has to provide an honest explanation and support it with evidence, which is extraordinarily unusual in constitutional litigation and often fatal to the government's case. And the legislature actually does have the power um, to, to essentially um, prescribe the, the correct judicial standard of review for laws that the legislature itself has created. Congress did this with something called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA, um, for federal laws. So it's, it's a tool. It's available. And the effect of this policy is, again, sort of like tying the legislature to the mass so it cannot respond to the siren song of abusive occupational regulation. I think it's going to take something on that order to, for it to work. Clark Neely is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. Subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes and Google Play. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.